Hi, and welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by HBC Heritage. I'm your host, David McGuffin. On this episode, we're continuing our journey into the history of Canada as seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. And today we're back in the Hudson's Bay Company vaults for a conversation with Amelia Fay. She's the curator of the HBC collection at the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg. That collection includes some 27,000 items, and today we're going to take a look at just a sampling of the amazing things that are in there. For instance, we'll learn what those stripes and colors mean on the iconic HBC point blanket, and why there's an argument for moccasins being just as important as the canoe in the development of the fur trade. And we'll look at some early items from that late 19th century moment when the Hudson's Bay Company began its shift from being fur traders to an international retail giant. Amelia helpfully sent us pictures of all the items she describes. You can find them on our website at cangio.ca forward slash explore. So without further ado, let's join Amelia Fay deep in the vaults of the HBC collection, starting off with those classic striped point blankets, which we learn are almost as old as the company itself. I think when a lot of people think about the Hudson's Bay Company, I was even talking to an American friend of mine who doesn't really know much about the company, but knows the blankets. So tell us about the blankets as this sort of iconic emblem of the company. Like when did they appear and what is their purpose early on? So blankets uh, started to appear relatively early. Um, and it, the Hudson's Bay Company weren't the only trading company that that used these types of wool blankets. Um, but they kind of ended up um, getting the, the market on them and known for them, these Hudson's Bay point blankets. Um, and they're, they're really great and they were embraced by a lot of local indigenous communities because they're warm. Um, they repel water, they're not entirely waterproof, they, so they could be made into coats or capotes. The blankets could be used as a blanket. I mean, there's lots of purposes for them. So the blanket was a great trade item for, for the company quite early on. And that classic multi-stripe that everybody thinks about now, and you know they're using it a lot in their branding for the company now, of that sort of cream base with the indigo, uh, yellow, red, and green stripes. Um, that was one of an earlier patterns as well, and it became popular, and it's kind of remained popular. I think it's their most popular style of blanket. Yeah, and what do we know about like the pattern, the colors, the significance of any of that? Yeah, I think people always want to think there's something more significant to them, but um, but it's largely just uh, the the dyes that were available at the time that kind of held fast, true color. Um, so those dyes were were really strong and suitable. They're nice, bold primary colors. Um, so yeah, that seems to be the rationale. There's no deep hidden symbolism or meaning um, behind those colors. Nice. Now you brought something in that you found especially interesting, I think, and it's uh, moccasins, yeah, that you have in your yeah. collection. Yeah. Do you want to hold up some of those and tell us about what you got? Sure. So I, I love moccasins. We have over like 300 pairs in the collection. Um, but of course, every, a lot of different communities made and used moccasins. So there's different styles made out of different materials, um, you know, regional specific, cultural specific things that are, are unique about them. So I brought out a couple of different styles. Um, but what I love about moccasins is the fact that we often think of 
um, technologies and, you know, how when Europeans were coming over, they were bringing all this technology and, oh, of course, you know, local people must have just been embracing all of it. And there were certain things that Indigenous peoples were were thinking like, oh, this would be great to incorporate. Um, but the trade went both ways. And so one of the great examples of that is, is moccasins. And they are a great technological advantage because if you look at pictures of those early, you know, 17th century traders, the footwear they would have been wearing back in England and then arriving on the shores of Hudson Bay in these flat-soled leather shoes, uh, probably not very suitable if you've tramped around up along the coast of Hudson Bay or in the boreal forest. So moccasins um, that were made by local women would have been hugely important. Having good footwear is hugely important. Um, so of course I love, I brought out a couple of different ones. This one here that I'm showing you right now is uh, Gwich'in and it has moose hair tufting on the vamp. So this is so Northern Yukon, sort of Northwestern, Northwest Territories. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, I love the 3D element of the moose hair tufting because they're pulling tufts of coarse hair up through to make this beautiful pattern. Beautiful flower pattern, it. yeah. Yeah, so it's really quite beautiful. And that's moose hide, I mean, and that's moose hide as well. And, and what would the fur be, do we know? I think the fur might be beaver. It's really well worn. You can see the heels, oh, the fur is almost completely worn off mm. on the back, um, but there are some longer hair. So I think it might've been beaver at one point. Amazing, wow. And how old is that, do we think? This would have been um, a lot of the collections, especially these from this region, would be probably early, mid-19th century. And then there's some other really great ones. And of course, I brought out different styles too. So those were like a lower cut ones. This one's more of, it's got a higher ankle, almost like a high top, yeah, if you will. Yeah. So it's got, uh, but it's got a beautiful embroidered vamp. So here you can see really delicate embroidery yeah, beautiful uh, sort of flower pattern again yeah and then you can even start to see the different you know styles so different groups this has got the sort of split it's got the seam down the middle yeah and a pointed toe whereas others have more rounded style and sort of the almost the puckering that happens when they pull it around mm -hmm. to sew it to the vamp and then this style here is more of a interior quebec or labrador style um, it's got a beaded cuff and beaded vamp. So very, um, so very colorful cuff. Yeah, it's got kind of that red stroud or trade cloth and navy blue on the vamp. Right, it's quite beautiful. right. So it is, there's a cloth in there. So you can almost see the blending of the cultures too. Yeah, like they're incorporating the glass trade beads, um, but doing, you know, their own styles and patterns. And then the last pair I brought is very kind of plain looking, but it does have this really delicate and beautiful porcupine quill work. Um, band right along the vamp mm -hmm. too and those have been dyed and and sewn in beautiful yeah so i, I find moccasins kind of a sometimes an underappreciated technological advantage that was uh throughout the fur trade um that people probably don't think about yeah but no hugely important i mean a lot of and we sort of think of the birch bark canoe but a lot of what they were doing out there was on foot too wasn't it so really yeah and you think about now if you're out hiking or camping and if you don't have good footwear you're miserable yeah. Yeah. so you want you want to have the appropriate footwear for the for the conditions where you're going to be working or hiking or moving about yeah you know you, you mentioned back to that first episode too of uh our podcast in Wiscoganish, and there's a story in there about uh, the European boat coming in, a ship coming in, and immediately trying to trade their sort of rotten woolen European clothes <laughs> for, you know, warm furs and skins from the, yeah. from the First Nations people. Like they quickly realized they were not well equipped for the, the journeys they were undertaking. And uh, so that was kind of that other, that 
sort of opposite trade, you know, we start to see trade moving in both directions. So ideas and different materials and different technologies are going back and forth between different cultures. Mm. Um, so you mentioned uh, the 18th, 1870 and the transfer of Rupert's land to Canada. And this was a big shift for the Hudson's Bay Company. They were no longer, uh, I mean, I think there was a, there was a, clearly already at that point a shift away from the fur trade. Furs were becoming harder to get and there was less of a fashion. And um, so the Hudson's Bay Company is now thinking in a different direction itself. There's a land boom, a settlement boom moving out west and how are they then how are they then positioning themselves for that it's um it's kind of a, a neat moment in the company's history um because it's, a, it's another time when they're quite agile as a company so they're they're starting to see these trends you know a decline in furs decline in popularity for furs they're also seeing an increase in settlers they don't really want to govern um, so they start to shift their business model, and that's when we start to see uh, an increase in them embracing more of a retail, wholesale side to the company. So they start manufacturing products that they know are going to be successful, tea, tobacco, um, you know, and they, they have their own market, marketed tins and that kind of thing. And that really starts to take off in the beginning of the 20th century, um, where they really start to embrace, you know, building these giant department stores across Canada, um, continuing with their wholesale business and making these products that are they're branded by the company. But um, yeah, definitely kind of branching away from furs and trying out different revenue streams. Yeah. So there's that very first store, I think, in Winnipeg in the 1880s. Yeah, they have their store down on uh, Maine and York. And then uh, they start building the department stores. And the one that everybody, if you're in Winnipeg, that's on um, Portage Avenue, that one doesn't open until uh, 1926. Oh, yeah. The Clatness, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the famous one. So it's a change too, because up until this point, really, they're a trading company. So they're literally trading goods for furs, basically. But this is a whole, I mean, this is people with money in their pocket that they're now selling to. Yeah. Do, do you have items that you could show us? We do have a, a nice collection of some of these products I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they have branded brandy and liquor bottles and tea, tobacco, coffee, um, all of these things. And what's really cool too is if you're interested in these products, you can go through old copies of the Beaver magazine, which is now Canada's history. Yeah. And they have their full archive available online. And so you can actually go and see some of the old advertisements for these products, which the Beaver magazine, of course, also started in the 1920s. And, um, and so, yeah, the pages are filled with them advertising their own products. Yeah. So there's point blanket advertisements. There's advertisements for all of these different products, all as a way to get consumers to kind of buy into their brand and their model. I remember seeing it, I don't know if this is an ad or a write-up about, um, they had a section for gold mining, basically, for the gold rush, right? Go to this part yeah. of the store where you can get all your gold rush needs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they kind of uh, grab, grabbed onto whatever they could. Even um, Arctic tourism, we think of that as something relatively recent. Um, but that was something HBC was into as well. So on ships like the Noscopy, um, they would advertise in the Beaver magazine for these Arctic tours and how you could board the Noscopy in Montreal and go up the Labrador coast and up into the Arctic um, in and around Iqaluit and kind of explore uh, this part of Canada, this remote wilderness. They really marketed it as this unique and uh, remote experience. So it's not something that's new like we think of today. Uh, it was something they were getting into in the 20s and 30s. That's amazing. A hundred years ago. Yeah. And you sort of think of it as the, you know, the big news, summer cruise sort of thing to do. That is incredible. Great. Thanks, Amelia. Great. Thanks so much. 
That was Amelia Fay, curator of the Hudson's Bay Company collection housed at the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg. So that's it for this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast with me, David McGuffin. Check back in with us next time for our final episode of this special Explore series marking the 350th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company. Amelia and I will discuss the importance of items donated by HBC fur traders and factors and the role they played in scientific research. And thanks again to our sponsors, HBC Heritage, for making this series possible. To learn more about the items discussed here today and about the seismic impact of the HBC on the country that would become Canada, visit hbcheritage.ca. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating, tell your friends about us, and please be sure to share these episodes on social media. And so until next time, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.